The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Dr. Seuss. There are thousands upon thousands of amazing, helpful books out there. My goal is to read them and share how we can implement the wisdom to improve our lives, the lives of the animals, and even help save the world. Welcome to Zoo Notable, taking wisdom from self-improvement, conservation, and animal-related books, and using them to help us become the best versions of ourselves. Whether you are an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and life, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. Just for the listeners at home, I'm looking at this a very put together, very prolific, wonderful, wonderful writer. I've I've known Sean for a couple years. Start we started at the Village Books open mic nights, and then I joined the cohort. I think you've done done um, yeah. Cammy's narrative project a few times, but I joined the cohort with you to get our books done. And that was at the point I was like, all right, I need to get his book. <laughs> I need to grab his book. Yeah. But um, that's where I, I finally I finally got your book and I finally read it and I was wowed. I, I wrote a review for Amazon and I actually Thank you. Actually, yes, yeah, Sean, that's a great point. Folks, if you want to give an author a great, great present, um, even if you can't buy their book leave us a review on Amazon. It's one of the best things that you can do for us. And I'll read this. I often see as being a writer and being in tons of writing groups and, and reading new pieces, like rough drafts, whatever. I've, I feel that what occurs in the writer's head is not what they actually put down on the paper. So they will, they'll have this whole idea in their head and like the whole scene plays out in their head, but they didn't write what was in their head on the paper. And so there's a lot of missing pieces when we're reading that we have to fill in the blank. I bring this up because I'm super guilty of this. I'm writing (laughs) book. I'm writing what I know. And I take out a lot of like the, what are things I take for granted? Like, what does the barn smell like? So, and when I leave those type of things out, it leaves the readers wanting some more. And I also brought this up because when reading this book, knowing that the author, none of that you, Sean, were experiencing something of a slight disability to write cl- clearly again, yeah. um, to be able to even write this book, I thought I was going to be, I thought I was going to have to do a lot of work to fill in the blanks. And I was going to have to derive some meaning and be like, all right, this is what he's, what he's getting at. But you, Sean, you took such, and I mean this in the best way, you such, you took such good care of the reader oh. from start to finish. If you want someone who's going to care about your, your experience reading his book, I highly recommend A Quest for Tears. But I never wondered, I never had to deduce conclusions. The writing here is crystal clear. And it's something that I never, I took for granted, but I never appreciated so much from re- as as I did reading this book. So um, first and foremost, thank you. Thank you oh. for this, this wonderful, <laughs> pleasurable book to read. You're making me wish I could cry because <laughs> I, I feel it in my chest and I have a lump <laughs> in my throat with your kind intro here and I, and I can't make tears. <laughs> 
to uh, of joy. They would be tears of joy, of course. And I, I can't make them still. So right, let's jump right into that. Um, let's do it. We have uh, Sean, Sean Dwyer, the author of A Quest for Tears. And that's what we were just talking about. Quest for Tears is an interesting title. It's about surviving traumatic brain injury. And as, as a, again, pretty, pretty privileged person myself, I am very lucky that I have not experienced traumatic brain injury for myself or for a family member. But one thing that I did take from this was traumatic life changes. Um, mm -hmm. Sean, again, thank you so much for coming on. A great friend, actually. I'm going to call you. Yeah, we're yeah, we're we good can friends. do that. Yeah, okay, let, let's let's it's been it's been a subtext for God knows how long. But <laughs> yes, we are friends. So, Sean, I do want again give you this opportunity to tell us a little bit about what what a quest for tears. Again, I'm showing all my listeners. Yeah, it's a great cover. I thought, you know, yeah. Anybody who is curious about what it really looks like, they can go and look at the picture on Amazon. But then I encourage you to go to SeanDwyerAuthor.com if you are uh, feeling the urge to buy it, because I have copies that I can autograph for you. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I will add that link to the description down below. And the book is on a little bit on sale right now. Yeah. Okay. So, well, what happened? I, I was stopped at a crosswalk and two guys were standing there on a two lane road above uh, Bellingham Bay. The, they stepped out in front of my car after nodding to acknowledge that I had stopped. And then one of the guys looked up and he saw something behind me and he pushed his friend back on the sidewalk and, and ran back himself. And I thought, this is not good. <laughs> I, and I had time to think that because the guy was way back there. I mean, it's not, he wasn't on my tail, but he was distracted. He was going about 50 and a 35. And he hit me with no brakes. Nice. He told me at the scene that he didn't see me until he was on me. And I was in a Honda Civic and he was in a Toyota Land Cruiser. And he swerved a little bit to the left. So he hit behind me rather than the other side of the car, which enhanced the uh, damage. And what made, what gave me the brain injury was not really hitting, but foam rubber in headrest is really hard. Mm -hmm. And so I hit that and that was a concussion right there. But then my seat broke and I went flat. And then his car pushed the back seat under my headrest and catapulted me into the air. And so there was space between me and the seat and I hit the belt, it, it stopped and my uh, head snapped forward and my jaw cracked on my sternum and that knocked me out. So I got the first concussion when he hit me, second concussion when the headrest came up to my head again, and then a third one when my brain, when my body stopped and my brain went forward. So I, when I had a fancy scan done, all, all of my lobes plus my amygdala showed rather serious impairment a year and a half after the accident. Yeah, again, you, you do a wonderful job of, of explaining it without like going to graphic detail, but taking the reader what, what happened in this moment mm -hmm. and, and also your journey to discovering what happened because when you first when it first happened, you thought you just skidded across and Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't I mean I knew I was gonna have a sore neck, but I didn't know I'd hurt my head. It, it took a few days uh, for uh, me to realize 
that I had developed impairments, I was, I was asked to proofread a document and it made me really sick to my stomach and gave me almost a migraine because I couldn't do that. I tried to sit down and write and I couldn't. I realized I had no, nothing like earworms or I, the internal monologue that most people have where you say, mm, I think I'm gonna go out and get a coffee. Uh, none of that. I mean, my head was dead silent for a couple of months and that scared me to death because I thought, what if I'm, for the rest of my life, I am essentially a walking vegetable. Oh man. <laughs> Once again, you take such good care of the of the readers to t- walk you through like how what it was like to get mm-hmm. to each point and the new realization. But what I really want to focus on is that again that dawn yeah. um, of when you realize that you had two versions of yourself at this point. Yeah, um, and you had Sean 1.0 who was before the accident. Yeah, and now you had Sean 2.0 and this is really what what really got me in because um, once again, I have not experienced traumatic brain injury. However, um, my husband has chronic kidney disease oh. and he had to have a kidney transplant. He got it in 2018 and we have actually called, we actually have a name for his kidney. His new kidney mm. is, his donor actually named it Arnold. <laughs> so. <laughs> Arnold has been adopted by our family, but Chris is now Chris. I mean, we've been referring to it as Chris 2.0, like yeah. the Chris that he was before his kidney transplant, before kidney disease is not the same and will never be the same. Right. Even if like got 100% kidney functionality, that person, that Chris 1.0 is, is no more, is obsolete, as you, as you say. Read a little bit from February 8th, 2015. First, I have to define Sean 2.0. I'm using the name, I'm using the naming system that computer programming developers use for next generation software upgrades. After all, I am a reboot, a a rewriting of code with potentially powerful computer. Sean 1.0 is gone, filed under O for obsolete. I cannot ever again be exactly who I was pre-accident. That's not pessimism, that's a factual understanding that I have brain damage and probably have lost access to more cells in one minute than I have lost in the 54 years leading up to that impact. So I wrote that. (laughs) Well, here's here's the thing, uh, PJ, one thing, which is that one of the things that I lost was the ability to read deep enough into a novel to track the story because of uh, executive function issues in my frontal lobe. And so I wrote this book and I'm unable to read it. Yeah, that, that saddens me more than, than, you know, <laughs> so, so you're reading me this stuff and I'm saying, dang, I, I, uh, somehow managed to pull that out of somewhere. You did. And it pulled out and it was, it was great. Uh, again, friends, I, if you could see Sean, he's just, he's the happiest person and that, as he mentions in the book, and he's doing here, makes light of even again situations. So it kind of keeps the keeps the mood light, keeps it happy and um, and hopeful. I think that's the important aspect. So you cel- you've celebrated how many? Sh- have you celebrated any other smash anniversaries? Smash anniversaries. I, I I give it some level of 
recognition every single year. Uh, the first one was, of course, the big one, <laughs> surviving a year without, uh, you know, getting another car wreck or whatever, and being able to go back to work. So I celebrated that first one a lot. This seventh one, I had to take into account that I that on January 10th, prior to the January 29th anniversary, I had fallen on ice, landed directly on my forehead, and <laughs> had to be all the way by ambulance for a scan, brain scan. And, and so I had to take into account that I've lost some of the progress I had made, but I could still look at how at the things that were better from year six and from year five, because the improvement in cognition after a brain injury is incremental and it can be very, it can seem very sudden, but because something improves all and you notice it, but if you go day to day, you'll never see anything. It's kind of like if you weigh yourself 10 times a day when you're on a diet, you're not going to see any progress. And so I had to stop trying to think, well, maybe today I can do this, or maybe mm -hmm. tomorrow I'll be able to. I had to think maybe in six months, I'll be able to read again. I also, I think of it as kind of like the birth of Sean 2.0. So oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it is. I, I recognize it as a second birthday because instantly, you know, this jelly got jiggled and instantly mm -hmm. I started, when I look back, I said, that's the moment that I started repairing and it's all, and thus it's the moment that I became who I am now, which is different from who I was in many, in many ways, some very good and some kind of frustrating. So you're talking about frustrating. That's a really good point. So let's, Again, not trying to bring up bad things, but let's go mm. over some of the, the frustrating aspects. So you are a writer. Yeah. You are a Spanish teacher. And well, again, just as, as life, in, life in general, you're a, an overall brand guy. But, uh, so how did this, how did this accident really in, impact day-to-day -day life? And then you're also your, your titles, your teaching and your, and your writing. Sure. Well, one thing I've had to do and continue to have to do is my Google calendar has to have every speck of information about what I'm going to do. And I don't mean brush my teeth. <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to go for a walk, I have to schedule it or else I'll just forget because I've had EEGs on my head even a year ago at year six where the electrode over the right side of my with my frontal cortex shows almost no signal. I, I simply don't generate thinking in that part of my brain, even after now, after seven years. And, and so the, the executive function is pretty wobbly. So I have to be reminded, I have to remind myself of things I need to do. And pretty, pretty darn good at name recall. The, the first accident, well, the accident, when I hit the back of my head, I damaged my visual cortex. And so for 21 months, I had to wear sunglasses day and night because uh, my head would just throb from, from not having them on. But 21 months after the accident, Halloween of 2016, all of a sudden, I didn't need sunglasses. And what I said about incremental growth, you know, improvement, on the 30th of October, I needed sunglasses. On the 31st, I didn't. And that was because finally, they, my brain got something 
clicked back in place, found a, a detour that they like finishing up rebuilding a bridge like over the Skagit River. All of a sudden you can drive on it. And before that you couldn't. So, but I still cannot follow the plot of a novel long enough to read an entire novel. I managed to kind of tough through one Agatha Christie short novel that I already had read. And, but that I didn't have to, that, that was almost like for show. It, it wasn't really reading a new book. Kind of makes me sick to my stomach even to think about trying to take in the mass of information I need to understand a novel because this part that the uh, exec, the frontal cortex where I have, where which takes the information and says where to put it is so damaged that my brain refuses to let it try to work because it would be counterproductive to the healing process that's still ongoing. I may never get it back. And the other, another thing, you know, like I went to my niece's funeral, she was 21. She slipped and fell in the family pool and drowned. And I went to her funeral and everybody was crying and I could feel the pain. I could not cry. And it makes me feel like a social outcast to some degree because there are times that it's appropriate to cry. And I guess it could be worse because a lot of TBI people can't stop crying and I can't start crying. And I guess that's a little bit better than walking around tears on your face all the time. But boy, it's, it's painful when a social cue is tears and I can't produce them. Yes. So that was a question, you know, my husband and I discussed this book as I was reading it too. Mm. And there was something that really struck him is like, again, the title of the book, A Quest for Tears. And he's like, can he not feel? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, yeah. no, no, he feels. It's just, you can't, and that, and that to me is probably the most frustrating part is just that, because that is what we, we, we view someone else. We see someone crying and we, we become like, okay, this person is sad, but if you're not crying, how do, you know, this is just yeah. how society is. We, we look at you and we're like, why isn't he crying? I mean, that's our, yeah. our perception of someone, somebody is, is skewed to that, you know, to those visual cues. And, um, and that is to me is what, what seems so heartbreaking and, and frustrating mm -hmm. for you is that you you are you're very caring you're very and you're again a very uplifting person that because of this because this little block this little block <laughs> it's a pretty big block but because of socially this, big but physically yeah. small I mean it's just probably one synapse away of being able to cry you know I don't know and the lucky thing is is again to give hope for those of you who have experienced something like this is that um, while the doctors did tell you that you won't that could be about a year mm -hmm. that you are finding again 21 months you know tw um, two and a half years later you are finding that you were still having slight little improvements that things would get a little bit better even much much longer past the one the quote-unquote one year mark that you yes. were told so that is very uplifting. And again, something that I took to, to another, another level. So me not having the, the actual TBI to relate to taking to my, my husband, uh, 
they were telling my husband that, <clears throat> that he didn't want, they didn't want to give him a, a kidney because he was too young because he's going to need oh. to get another kidney. And they said in 15, 20 years. And our mindset was immediately, no, we're going to make this last because, because, because we became Chris version 2.0. We were like, nope, we're going to take care of this kidney. We're going to change the way we eat. We're going to change the way we're exercising. We're going to change our lifestyle to make sure that this kidney, and even if we do need another kidney in X amount of years, okay, <laughs> that, is, you know, that, that is what it is. But we still find ways to improve each and every day is a learning experience for, for us. So even if you've been diagnosed with TBI, even if you have some other life altering um, experience in your life, you know, the, don't give up hope. Things can get better. It takes time. That's the, the big thing. It takes a lot of time. It also takes a lot of effort on, on, on your part to, to do what you need to do and also to find the people who will do what you need, you know, that will support you. So Sean, uh, you, you talk to many different professionals. You have, you know, massage therapists, you have neurologists, you have um, a regular therapist, just a whole team. Craniosacral, uh, acupuncture, you name it. I tried it. Yeah. I figured there's no harm in trying this stuff. Right. Unless you're talking about cyanide therapy, which <laughs> I, I never uh, took on. I, I, I don't recommend the cyanide therapy. No, no, no. I also don't recommend the Twinkie diet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's some things I don't recommend, but. Uh... Before we continue with our Zoo Notable, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. I couldn't do these Notables without them. So we'll be right back after these messages. So one thing, again, a couple other quotes here is that, that from February 12th, this is still early on, but yeah. um, I cannot criticize, I can't allow myself to criticize work my brain is doing. My brain is doing its very best to perform cognitive tasks while there are detours and roadblocks put up there by the collision, the kinder I am to my brain, the more my injured brain will feed off the positive vibes. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the hardest things to remember because when I can't do something, I can be like, Oh, it's so frustrating. But if my brain feels embarrassed or put upon by my negativity, yeah, that's not going to help anything. That's certainly not going to speed up my my healing. Right. So, yeah. So it's important to have the positive attitude and know that and trust the process. Very much so. And the other, again, another part of that was your assessors, some of some of the people on your team, one of your characteristics that prevent you from healing at the maximum possible rate was your strong desire to get back to work as quickly as possible. How about that? I have actually been told before by, by my employers that I work too hard and I care too much. And I thought that was like the most bizarre criticism on the face of the planet. But looking back at, again, reading this is what brought this to mind. It was that there is, there is a point of caring too much and working too hard, but you're going to go into compassion fatigue and burnout yeah. much quicker. And if you're pushing yourself 
farther than your capacity, again, we get injured. That's again, I speaking from experience, I hurt my shoulder a few times pushing past the capacity that I was able to do. So there is that aspect. And so even though we want to, again, I want to get over this. I've got this positive mentality. I'm going to go gung-ho, go at the pace that feels right for your brain, for your, for your individual case, your individual situation is going to dictate how fast and how slow it's going, it's going to be. And just in, I know this is so hard for, for, for someone who has, who is frustrated, who has experienced so much, but I'm enjoy the journey. Enjoy what that enjoy the process as mm-hmm. much as possible. Be grateful for each small little step that that is that you experience along the way. As you meet Shani, you aren't able to cry now because you are not supposed to cry now. I thought that was really, really, really important. Can you tell us a little bit more about your kind of spiritual journey here too? Yeah. Anything that's going in put you right on the edge of dying. You know, they talk about people who die on the operating table and that's near death experience. But if also anybody who's right, right on the cusp of being killed, I mean, I could have, my neck could have been snapped within, you know, one mile per hour of that happening. And so you start to say, okay, uh, there's either a reason for me to be here or there's not, right? So Rashani is, I would call her sort of a, a mystical type person. She, she lives in Hawaii and she does self-awareness type seminar things. And I was at one and I, I asked her about that. And she said what she said, that I'm not supposed to cry yet right now. And then my, uh, my therapist, who is a very much a Zen Buddhist person, because of her own experiences with rheumatoid arthritis from age seven, she said, can we get you to a point where your satisfaction with your life, if it doesn't improve at all, is adequate? Mm -hmm. Can you say to yourself, okay, this is what I, these are the tools I have at my disposal. Am I, can I accept that? Or do I need to take cyanide therapy? (laughs) Now, and I, I definitely got to that point. At first, it was there was a lot of grieving over not being able to read. I mean, I have to lie around because my neck's sore. Why can't I read a book? You know, stuff like that. So I guess I it was a, a Zen moment to accept what my therapist Nancy was saying about accepting my fate. And Roshani was that telling me to accept my fate. And I accepted that one thing I needed to do because I saw any remaining life as a gift was try to be healthy and do everything in my power to, let's say, do what the great religious leaders of the world would do, how one should treat other human beings. And I see that as a, as a sort of a spiritual awakening for me. That's the kind of thing that people need to be aware of. We need to take care of our poor, our sick, our tired, our mentally under capacity people. So a lot of this stems from having realized that there that, that's a way I can help redeem the gift of continuing life.
Yes, I I 100% agree. Like my big and animals. I guess <laughs> and animals. I also again this this spoke to me. Uh, you're going for your PhD, and I'm going to get this story wrong, but they closed the program down. Yeah, well, um, when I moved out here, I still had not finished my PhD. I was slovenly, slow, sloppy about trying to make this happen. And so I thought, well, I'm going to re readjust this. I'm, I'm out here in Washington. It's a new place. Go to the University of Washington. Surely they have a PhD program, and I'm going to get in there and knock this sucker out of the park. Well, they, because of political issues in the department, they had shut down the PhD program. So for a certain amount of time, there wasn't one. And then they got one back to you. Yeah. <laughs> and, but you, at one point you said, you said, I think I have to change my perspective on what Sean 2.0 needs to do. Instead of saying, I'm going to get my PhD, I need to say, I will do everything in my power to get my PhD. Many things are outside of my control in every aspect. So yeah, and and so what happened was when they restarted the program, I probably could have gotten in right away, but I put it off a while. And then after the accident, I was on my list of why didn't I do this? Is and so I applied, and and so they did not accept me. And so I realized that I had done what I could. Mm-hmm. in that regard as far as the University of Washington which doesn't mean there aren't other options in fact I have found another one and we'll see but if I don't ever get the PhD it won't be because I continue to sit around not thinking about it right. and and so that that was important to me like if I never get to where I can run a five minute mile again well you know that's just because it won't it shouldn't be because i can't because i didn't try it should be because i'm not capable of it just again from my from my perspective even this goes for outside of the traumatic brain injury just you know everyone listening you know do everything your power and if it's honestly not your fault, then just let it go. You know, if it's one of those things like, oh, the program shut down. Well, that's, that's a door closing. Mm-hmm. That's not a, that's not a, you know, house blowing up kind of situation. It's a, it's one door closes. There's another one that's going to be open. And if not, a, if not a door, there are tons of windows in there too. Mm-hmm. There, there find a way, but don't just say, oh, this, this, you know, I tried for the job, I tried for my dream job and they didn't, they didn't want me. So I, I'm not, I'm not cut out for this job. There, you know, there, there are ways. And, and if there's any way to get into it, be the person that finds that way, be the, you know, do everything you can. One last thing that I, that I wanted to share with everyone that kind of touched me on a very personal level was just when you, when you went to your traumatic brain injury conference and um, you're talking a little bit about David Grant and his article that inspired you because uh, he, he had a similar experience yeah. with uh, TBI that you did. And then you got to see him speak. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and that was probably, again, I, I, I know what that's like, <laughs> but, but more than that, what got to me was just like how important it really, really is, folks, for you to share 
your story and for you, Sean, to share your story because yeah. there's that common humanity. So once again, even though I have not had a brain, a brain injury, and even though I don't know anyone besides you, a good friend has had a brain injury, I still, one, learned a lot from your book and turned my, again, turned my, everything to a different, changed my perspective on how I'm seeing if somebody's not crying, maybe that has nothing to do with them being a cold hearted. It has something very much that I'm not aware of. Or if I'm seeing someone struggling on, on a bus, that doesn't mean that they are, that they're crazy. It means that maybe they, they need a little bit more extra assistance. They need compassion. There's that common humanity um, aspect and the, the importance of sharing so that people know that what they're experiencing, they are not alone. How important that really is that um, I feel honestly that if you touch just one or two people with this book who have brain injury, they're like, oh, he gets it. He totally gets it. He yeah. understands what I'm going through. That would be enough. But then to, again, to be able to share, to be able to make that kind of connections with other things too, like this is, this is such an important, uh, I've related to you on, on many other levels, again, with my husband and his kidney disease. Um, I related to this, again, on a completely unmedical situation. If somebody has lost their job or has lost their, has lost a child and like they have yeah. a new, they have a new, um, or a loved one at least, you know, lost a loved one they are now experiencing a version 2.0 of themselves and what that can mean and what's going to mean for their brain, what's going to mean for their body, what's going to mean for their, you know, their psyche continuing forward, sharing that experience. Gosh, people, it's just so, so important to show that we are all, we're all human. And that when you share your stories, you'll find you, you can help someone else through this. And also you'll find that common humanity, find that you're not, you are not alone. That's, that's the key. Uh, as I was going was I was trying to help TBI survivors, loved ones, caregivers, and also their medical people understand that the pain that they're experiencing is also something that needs support. And we all need support in many different ways. And it could be any number, uh, there, any permutation of tragedy. Chris's kidneys. Yeah, I mean, this is awesome that this probably gives him more strength and more vi vi vitality and all kinds of improvements in his uh, life, quality of life. And that's wonderful. And I hope it doesn't take anything away from him, although I, I know you'd have to watch out for, you know, being immunosuppressed and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, that could be a thing this time of, <laughs> in, in this time of history, you know? So yeah, that, that'd have a huge effect. Every, every one of us has a trial of some sort that we face. And if we get support, if one can bring oneself to seek out support in whatever trial you're facing, one finds oneself 
probably better off that way. And it can be really easy to decide to curl up in a ball. But I would rec I would encourage anyone who's listening to seek support for your situation, whatever it is. Heck, you know, I talk to people who are not not brain injured people who have read my book and want to share their own problem situation that's really a burden and I'm more than glad to listen to that because you know as I think back on what I wrote here a lot of it was basically about resilience and finding another way pretty proud of my tenacity I'm not going to say that that may, that it's because I was simply such an amazing author that I couldn't possibly mess up, but my tenacity in trying to get the thing right before mm -hmm. I put it out there and having something to say, well, it came out when it, when it came out. And, you know, everybody can get to their goal eventually if they push. And I, and I hate to say, you know, I, I'm not to, I haven't reached my, all of my goals. I still can't cry. I still can't read. Um, but I don't know, you, you just have to continue to live. Mm. Yes, and continue, yeah, and continue to do, to just be the best that you can be and love yourself, love mm -hmm. your, love that new version and, and take care of yourself to the best of your ability. So again, reaching out for help if you need it, uh, check out this book. There, Again, wonderful, a wonderful story to, to help you to again, keep, keep being the best per version of yourself, no matter what happens in life. And here's to your, your version 2.0. Yes, for everyone's 2.0. that's all I've got for this wonderful book. Let me know your thoughts. What big idea resonated with you the most? And how can you incorporate that into your life starting today? And share some of your favorite books that you love to see as you notable on. A gigantic thank you to my patrons, Rochelle, Laura, Sarah, Liz, and Stephanie. Keep working on becoming the best version of yourself today, tomorrow, and forever. For you, your community, the animals, and the planet. Take care and I will see you all next time.